0: Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Well, it is a huge problem and it is going to get much, much worse. Bigger. And as part of the solution, we have going on right here in Toronto, what is billed as the world's largest gathering of researchers in the field of Alzheimer's disease. There'll be many new findings presented that will help us cope with this scourge, which now afflicts over 564,000 Canadians, And uh, we're going to be talking to a couple of very eminent researchers on various aspects of the disease. I want to give out the numbers. A lot of people who this afflicts or they have family members and are trying to cope with this. The numbers 416-360-0740. Toll-free, 866 Dr. Matthew Parrott is a postdoctoral researcher in nutrition science with Baycrest Health Sciences here in Toronto, and he tracked 351 independently living older adults over a three-year period, and he found that there are three things that can override the negative effects of a bad diet when it comes to cognitive impairment. He is on the line with me now. Welcome, Dr. Parrott.
2: Hi, happy to be here.
1: Uh, Thanks for uh, coming on. So, uh, first of all, you know, we know generally that what's good for your heart is good for your brain. And in general, people who eat a bad so-called Western diet, with uh, lots of processed meat and and uh, white bread and potatoes and fried food, that that's bad mm-hmm. for cognition. Correct?
2: Yep, that's right. That's what we certainly found in our study uh, that a diet like that uh, resulted or is associated with uh, more cognitive decline over three years, faster loss of cognitive function.
1: Uh huh. But but what overrode that?
2: Yep, and so basically, if uh, if you uh, had a lifetime history of uh, of higher education, a more socially and intellectually stimulating job or occupation, and uh, participated in socially engaging leisure activities in old age, so a whole lifetime of mental stimulation, you could partially offset the negative. Uh, effects of that bad diet on the associations with the cognitive decline and, uh, and baseline cognitive functions. So uh, although uh, there was always a cost to eating poorly, people with low mental stimulation, a low history of mental stimulation, uh, were much more affected by the bad diet than people with uh, a higher level of mental stimulation in their lives.
1: Now, if, if you, okay, if you kind of, uh parse that out, I mean, the bottom line is that mental stimulation and social interaction are things that are really important to either slow cognitive decline or stave it off, kind of whether you eat poorly or you eat well, correct?
2: Yeah, they are. So there is a universal benefit to cognitive function of being more, having a more mentally stimulating lifestyle. And uh, and then it is thought that these uh, mentally stimulating lifestyle builds new connections between brain cells, uh, which allow you, your allows your brain to uh, maintain cognitive function even if it gets some damage that might be caused by things like a bad diet. So uh, it provides resilience. It provides a backup capacity of the brain to withstand some bad things in your life.
1: And uh, is there anything, I mean, you're talking about lifelong mental stimulation, but uh, if what can people do, you know, starting tomorrow? Uh, mm. Especially, you know, maybe they're retired and they haven't been that active or um, whatever. What can, what can people do now?
2: Right. Well, a variety of things. Like, for instance, just thinking of our study, uh, you can start attending to your diet because there was always... Uh, benefit of uh, having a better diet. So limiting intake of things like white bread and processed meats and uh, sugary drinks, all of these things were part of that dietary pattern. Uh, And also of the three indicators that we considered, one of them was uh, participating in socially engaging leisure activities in old age. So what is old age? Uh, Well, yeah, so, uh, our, the people in the study, the average age was 74, and it ranged from 68 to 82 years old. And, uh, and some of the socially engaging leisure activities that were part of the mentally stimulating lifestyle that uh, protected from uh, the bad diet uh, were things like uh, being in a choir, uh, organizing a community event, volunteering. Uh, maybe having a being part of some sort of book club or study group. So those types of things, you didn't necessarily have to lead a group or anything. It was just engaging with other people.
1: Yeah. It's, it's interesting, you know, um, we've also known, for instance, that people who know more than one language that protects against, uh, you know, the, the, the the steadiness and the slowness of, of the decline. And Mm -hmm. just this weekend, I was visiting with a friend and, her mother was diagnosed with dementia a long time ago. I don't remember how long. So I was quite surprised she said, well, that her mother is just perhaps getting to the stage where she won't be able to live independently like she still lives independently and I thought this woman speaks five languages. Hmm. And wow. and that is probably because you know, you know i've just no know, knowing from other people the amount of time between a diagnosis and the time that the person can't manage on their own is is much shorter than it was in in this case
2: yeah yeah well yeah right and being uh, at least bilingual is definitely you're quite right is it's thought to affect the same things that uh, it's part of a mentally stimulating lifestyle. It's uh, supposed to be acting the same way as some of the things we looked at to provide protection from age-related cognitive decline and protection from from microscopic brain damage that might uh, adversely impact cognitive function. So yeah, I know that that is uh, that's an interesting story.
1: Okay, well uh, let's go to the phones. We've got uh, Giovanni in Brampton. Hi, Giovanni. Uh, yes.
3: Uh, good afternoon. Uh, um, I'll have uh, some come better to do about regarding Alzheimer.
1: Uh-huh.
3: And I would like to tell to the doctor, with the study that I've done lately, have you ever found out that it's not just the diet that we eat, what do we eat, or white bread, or green bread, or whatever you call <laughs> it? Is anything to do with uh, uh, with the prescription that we take in as a older gets older and has some effect on that? Can you...
2: Right. So, I mad,
3: please.
2: Okay. Well, in terms of prescription drugs for healthy people, I I, I don't know. You, you can take drugs to control things like uh, cholesterol and blood pressure, and paying attention to controlling things like that, controlling your cholesterol, controlling your blood pressure. That is definitely something that has been shown to uh, help. Uh, lessen cognitive decline, and especially if you start paying attention to it as early as possible, as soon as it's diagnosed. So, uh, in that in that terms, yes, uh, I think. The only- it-
1: I think he might be referring to... We've seen some studies recently that show that certain drugs that are given to older people, perhaps, uh, and they're on them too long, can bring on uh, some cognitive decline, like
3: benzodiazepines. Is that what you're referring to, Giovanni? Uh, Yes. What I'm thinking about this is, uh, for a long run, these drugs have an effect on our mental health. And if we, our body can tell us when we take so many drugs, our body can react to these drugs and mm-hmm. it will try to get a solution on these drugs by eliminating some of them and have a study of ourselves because our mind is very complicated organ and it is very, very good that We take care of our body. You explain that to me?
2: Yep. And I think in terms of I know that uh, there's a whole lot of research looking into uh, how because older people, uh, may their livers may not work as well as younger people, that the same drugs that we give to younger people, at the same dosages, we really have to be careful and maybe adjust dosages or not even use certain drugs in older people because it could lead to things like cognitive decline or confusion or delirium. Uh, just because uh, the, their bodies uh, work differently than younger people, so it is—it's uh, an active area of research, one that I'm not personally involved in. But uh, it's—I uh, think you're—you're you're right to start thinking uh, yes. of that. Yep.
3: Yes, yes, mm-hmm. very good. I think I have a good answer, but the main thing <laughs> is that we have to put look at ourselves and whatever—it's not good for her. Body is not good for our mind. Absolutely. And, you got it, Giovanni. Thank, thank you, you for your call. Thank you for taking my call and let me participate. i uh, just would like to get some solution on this. Thank okay. You.
1: Thank you, Giovanni. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay. Um, so we have to take a quick break. The numbers to call before we go, four one six. 360-0740 or toll-free 866 740 Back after this.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. Oh, no. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Oh, no.
1: Welcome back. We are talking about some of the findings from the Alzheimer's Conference now on in Toronto. And uh, we're going to turn to another aspect of this before we go. Dr. Matthew Parrott, just uh, can you sum up in a few words?
2: Uh, well, I think uh, that uh, it's important that people think about their diet, but also think about other things in their lifestyle. I think you need to make a lot of changes across your whole lifestyle if you're truly interested in preventing Alzheimer's or uh, maintaining your cognitive function. And these things are basically get involved, stay involved with your community, with other people, and then also uh, try to limit some of those bad things in your diet. And fruits and vegetables are always a good choice.
1: Okay, Dr. Parrott, thanks so much.
2: No problem. Thank you. Have a great day. You
1: too. Bye bye.
2: Okay, bye.
1: And uh, we are going to turn now to another aspect of the disease. A lot of Alzheimer's disease is going undiagnosed and untreated, and primary care doctors should focus more on using existing prescription drugs to deal with the symptoms. That is the word from experts, including Dr. Sharon Cohen, medical director of the Toronto Memory Project. Meanwhile, she also has promising research on what could be the first new Alzheimer's drug to be approved in 12 years. I have Dr. Cohen on the line now. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, uh, doctors, why are some doctors reluctant to give people some of the existing drugs? I think the most common one is called Aricept, uh, and it uh, s- presumably controls symptoms.
4: Yes, that's right. So eriset is now generic, uh, and it's called denepezil. And there are three other, or uh, two other medicines, making three in that class that came about in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And we have another class of medicine to help with symptoms that was approved a little later in the 2000s. Um, and these um, prescriptions, well, they're certainly not and we do need more medicines to add on to get better results for people, they have been shown over many, many thousands of patients uh, in many clinical trials around the world to add benefit. And, yes, you would think that in a difficult disease that is so um, uh, challenging uh, for those affected and their families, that we would be happy to have a little bit of benefit and yet, surprisingly, the medical community has not readily embraced the treatments that we have. And um, understandably, we're looking for more dramatic treatments. We're looking for cures. But those are not going to come overnight. And we shouldn't ignore the treatments that we have uh, that have been uh, proven to be effective. So and why are why are
1: they being ignored? I mean, well, what? Well, it's
4: what? a tough diagnosis for our colleagues in primary care to make Uh, tough in the sense that many feel they don't have adequate training many feel they don't have the time and resources to do the memory testing or the things that would be necessary and it's it's a, a difficult diagnosis to convey especially if you're saying to a patient in front of you in your practice that you've got alzheimer's disease and there's nothing we can do for you which is which is a myth we can't cure the disease but there's lots we can do so this therapeutic nihilism, if you will, this feeling that there's nothing we can do um, is is a myth that has unfortunately been embraced. I mean, really, there's not enough that we can do, but there are many things we can do to make quality of life better. And um, the medicines that are approved have been shown not just to help thinking and memory, um, but also to help daily function and to relieve some of the caregiver burden. And these are important aspects of dealing with Alzheimer's disease. So we're not just talking about a few-point increase on a memory test. We're talking about people functioning better, you know, over the course of a year. They may get a bit of bump up in function and then symptoms may be delayed. So we haven't gotten at the underlying uh, root of the disease. New medicines are needed for that and many are under... Development in the pipeline, but the new medicines will add on to the existing medicines. They're not intended at the moment to replace existing medicines, and that's that's uh, you know getting back to the point about what? why are we not prescribing these? I think we need a whole system change. We need more education, you know, that for the that doctors. We things. need the absolutely. education absolutely, and and for the community. I mean, people need to go to their doctors and say, hey, I understand there are some medicines I want to try them. It's tough when you have you know, a memory problem yourself and you are often reliant on your family to be your advocate and and it's very difficult for non-medical people to know how much is normal aging, how much is the memory problem, and this is why you really need uh, a specialist or an informed family doctor to
1: take the problem seriously. Okay, why is it so difficult or why does it take so long to get a diagnosis?
4: Well, it's not like... Uh, diagnosing hypertension. You take a blood pressure reading and it's elevated. You take it over a few times and you see it consistently elevated. To evaluate whether someone has Alzheimer's disease really involves taking a very careful history and understanding whether it's in a story that that speaks to change in one's uh, mental abilities over a period of time and then confirming that there is an impairment in memory or thinking by doing various cognitive tests. Um, That takes a little bit of skill and it certainly takes some time. It doesn't fit very easily into a 10-minute visit in a family doctor's office. And um, so I'm not wanting to bash my colleagues in family medicine. I think they're charged with an incredibly um, broad task in healthcare. But this disease, we have to Accept uh, is going to be more time-consuming. We need people to rise to the challenge. Um, memory specialists and specialty clinics need to, you know, offer their hand more collaboratively. Um, some family doctors will acknowledge they don't have the knowledge or skills to diagnose, and then are willing to refer to a memory clinic. But how frustrating to find the waiting list might be six months to a year. So we really have a systems problem.
1: Not to say that there aren't solutions, but we need to tackle this. Yeah, and we we need more gerontologists. Yeah, or neurologists. I'm a a behavioral neurologist. I run a memory clinic.
4: Um, Many of us can be involved in in the solutions. Um, But, um, you know, one solution that we've come to in our memory clinic, which is one of the largest memory clinics in Canada, it's right here in Toronto, is that people who are interested in... um, in being proactive about their health, can call us on our hotline. They don't have to wait for their family physician to refer them. Sometimes people spend a lot of time trying to convince their primary care physician that there's a problem, and um, we think people should be able to call directly. We can facilitate that referral either through our own contact with the family doctor or there may be a research opportunity for those individuals and that, that's great too, because we're all about trying to further uh, uh, new treatments. Okay. Um, sadly, people need to often be on existing treatments to benefit from new treatments. And so, if we if haven't been diagnosed, haven't been started
1: on treatment, we're losing time in a progressive disease. Okay, let's, uh, let's take a call. We've got Dorothy in sure. Toronto. Hi, Dorothy.
5: Oh, hi, Libby. Thank you for having the doctor on. Thank you, doctor, for what you're My doing. My pleasure for Alzheimer's and I know it's foods and all the different things that cause it but do you think too that when someone has Alzheimer's and they're disagreeable with their family or whatever that they should be left alone a lot and they say well they fight with everybody and leave them alone isolation is what makes the disease worse do you believe that
4: Yes, I do. I think that every case is a little bit different. You don't want to overwhelm people with too much activity and stimulation because that can can uh, escalate agitation. But leaving people alone with no activity and no social interaction is almost certainly a bad thing. You know, the brain needs stimulation. People need uh, social interaction, whether they have Alzheimer's disease or anything else. And so I would say leaving people alone is not the solution. But what the right activity and the right what the right amount of activity might be for any individual is something that a memory doctor like myself might be able to help with.
5: What about taking them out and getting them under trees and parks, all the oxygen from the leaves of the trees, getting them under things like that that are nature and wholesome and bringing them oxygen? Do you think that's a really good idea?
4: I think being out in nature is a wonderful way for all of us to be, and uh, you know whether it's the oxygen from the trees or just enjoying the um, the atmosphere uh, and doing it with somebody uh, brings benefits. So absolutely. What about uh, uh, what about what about some
1: drugs that reduce agitation for people? Sorry, drugs for education. Agitation. There Uh, are some.
4: There are, there are some medicines that are helpful for agitation, uh, and, uh, again, these tend to be under prescribed. We have, you know, great fears about side effects in the medical community. Of course, we want to do more good than harm, but agitation is not benign. It, it harms people. It interferes with other people being able to care for them. It interferes with relationships. And if someone's agitated, you know, either because they're fearful, uh, Paranoid, uh, whatever it is, they feel their privacy is being invaded. That's a very poor quality of life situation for that individual. So agitation absolutely should be treated if it's interfering with quality of life or care. And again, there's under treatment of agitation. So uh, we've got a lot of work to do uh, helping our, our physician community understand that we need to be treating uh, a little bit more aggressively.
5: Oh, doctor, excuse me, could I ask you as well that this really concerns me? The oils, like the petroleum oils that a lot of the foods are cooked today, um, they stay in the bloodstreams. It's going to the brain and to the stomach. Um, shouldn't we be telling people that they should be using like pure, uh, pure oils and not the bleached flour and rice and, and sugar? and too much white bleach, salt, uh, all the chemicals that they use with the products that people use every day, like sugar and salt and flour, and, and even potatoes. Potatoes are good for you. It's how they're cooked, if they're in deep fat.
1: Uh, yep. I think we get the, the question, doctor. Yeah. So diet is going to be, or dietary pattern will be
4: one part of the brain healthy lifestyle. Um, You know, usually it doesn't boil down to one specific ingredient, one particular oil. It's more the pattern of, as you heard from your previous uh, guest, uh, you know, fruit and vegetables, not too much animal fat. Trying to follow something like that makes a lot of sense in terms of keeping the heart and the brain healthy. But that's only going to be a piece of the puzzle, and it's going to take a number of things in lifestyle and probably medicine to um, prevent and to treat Alzheimer's.
1: Okay, Dorothy, thanks so much for your call. Um, we only have a, a couple of minutes left. Dr. Cohn, do you want to tell us a little bit about this new drug you've been uh, working on? Yes, for sure. Um, the, the drug is
4: called Inteprodine or RVT-101. It is a drug under development by Axevent Sciences. And um, I'm a participant in the sense that I'm one of the investigators uh, around the world who's involved in this. This is a multi-center study, and it's a late-phase study, meaning this study we're doing is a confirmatory study to confirm the benefits already seen to individuals in Alzheimer's disease in an earlier uh, version uh, of, uh, of this similar study. And so we're in phase three, and if the results are successful... Um, then the package goes to the regulators to Health Canada and the FDA to see if this might be uh, a next drug on the market. Um, This is a study that individuals can participate at our site and other centres. We're at Toronto Memory Program. Um, You can go to our website, find out how to participate. It's the Mindset Study. That's the name of the study. And it's one of many studies that allow people to do something about Alzheimer's disease, and uh, we're very, very indebted to all of our participants who, who stand up and want to do something more.
1: Okay, I think uh, that's a good note uh, to wrap things up on. I guess the message is, uh, first of all, I know it can be difficult to diagnose and you can get uh, resistance from the person it's actually affecting, but try to get it diagnosed as much as you can, and and don't assume that that there's nothing you can do. There Absolutely. are things to do that will slow the progression, and those things are important to be done, correct? Absolutely, or at least slow symptoms down. So, uh, that, you know, treating symptoms is very important.
4: You know, if you have a headache, you treat the pain. There may be a, a need to look for the underlying cause, but you don't ignore the pain. And unfortunately, in Alzheimer's disease, we're saying, well, forget about the symptoms. You know, we want the cure. Well, okay, <laughs> it's going to take some time
1: treat the symptoms. Okay, Dr. Sharon Cohen, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Absolutely a pleasure. Okay. Have a good day. Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one.